As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. by me, Cole Auerbach. I'm joined as always by the athletic senior writer, Chris Vanini. I'm coming at you live from Vegas where I'm in town for the Hall of Fame honors and also there's a Sports Business Journal conference. So there will be some news this week. You'll hear from all the different commissioners of, of all the Power 5 leagues and the FBS conferences. I'll be moderating a panel with some prominent athletic directors. So there will be a little bits of news coming out of Vegas this week as everyone kind of talks on the record about the landscape of college sports. Chris is at home hopefully resting or at least trying to amid all the coaching changes and the transfer portal news. But hello, Chris. Hope you're doing okay. I'm doing well. Shoot, you're hosting panels. You're out in Vegas. I'm I'm here sitting in my office getting ready for the Frisco Bowl to come to town next week. I guess it I guess it's not quite the same, it's, but it's, uh, it is it is the same. I, I did I did get to share one meal with Ari Wasserman, resident Vegas expert at his apparently favorite restaurant in the world, the Mastros Steakhouse, which is in an upscale mall in Las Vegas. So it feels very much like an Ari Wasserman favorite restaurant. The meal was excellent. No complaints. That's good. I've, ordered, I've not been to well. That's I, I, you said Mastro's. I've not been there. Ma- Mastro's, Maestro's. Anyway, it was it was delicious, and we also saw if any of our uh, listeners remember Tashawn Reed, our Florida State writer, now our Las Vegas Raiders reporter. He famously does not like his steak to basically have any pink to it. Um, he orders <laughs> it medium well. It had a lot of pink. I took a photo. I documented it. Um, so yeah, we had a team athletic dinner which was great, but Ari Wasserman is gone, so I will not be gambling away my life savings with him, but Good. I will, I'm sure, join him and Andy on the feed at some point here over the postseason to make some game picks. But this is a postseason edition of Power Hour, uh, and we will get to the news of the week and the day. Uh, I wanted to bring you today's episode of Power Hour, where we break down everything you need to know in college football in an hour or less. We might make you thirsty while doing so, so feel free to grab a cold one. We always start with the Power Five. In true Power Hour fashion, we give ourselves about a minute to cover one of the hottest topics in college football before the buzzer sounds and it's time to move on to the next. I will start with number one. 
It is a couple days removed from Selection Sunday. We saw the college football playoff rankings. Number one, Georgia. Number two, Michigan. Number three, TCU. Number four, Ohio State. Did the committee get it right? In my mind, they absolutely did. I think the seating was correct as well. I was worried slightly when I woke up on Sunday morning for like maybe the 5% chance that the committee was going to screw TCU. And thankfully, they did not. They valued the fact that they were undefeated until the overtime period of their conference championship game, a game against a top 10 opponent that they'd already beaten. And they decided not only were they one of the four best teams in the country, but that they should stay at number three ahead of a team that did not play this weekend. So I felt like the committee got it right. I am very excited for the two pairings that we got in the CFP. But after all of the chaos of USC's loss and and also TCU's loss, I, I think that there was more angst around the top four than there was expected to be had you not had those upsets. But I think ultimately... Saner minds, saner heads prevailed, and it was correct, despite all of the lobbying from Nick Saban on Saturday night. Nicole, they got it right. And the honest truth is that it's pretty easy for them to get it right every single year. Uh, we, 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 We bicker, we react, we debate about the rankings every week. But when it gets down to the final ranking, it's usually pretty clear who the top four are. The only exceptions maybe that first year when when Ohio State jumped TCU and Baylor and maybe the years when UCF should have gotten in as an undefeated team. But it's usually pretty easy to do this, and this was right. Look, I, I don't like penalizing USC for playing an extra game, for being in the field, playing in a conference championship game and losing and missing out. But they lost to the same team twice. And ultimately, that's what it was for me. You can't beat Utah twice. You're not going to be in the playoff. Ohio State slides in. It all makes sense. You were in Indy for the Big Ten Championship. I was here in Dallas for the Big 12 Championship and watched that absolutely classic game. Saw Max Duggan in tears after the game. And I'm like you. I was a little concerned. An outside chance TCU may not get in. But ultimately, it was an easy call. Not only to have him in, but to have him in at three. So... They got it right. Number two, coaching changes. We've had a lot since you and I were last on this pod last week. Deion Sanders, Coach Prime is at Colorado. Tom Herman's at FAU. Alex Golish is at USF. Scott Satterfield is at Cincinnati. Kevin Wilson at Tulsa. Jamie Chadwell at Liberty. G.J. Kinney at Texas State. And there's probably a couple others that I just didn't put on there. But, yeah, this is this is – you know, we've only got, at the moment we're recording this, I think there are five open jobs left. And this has moved faster, the, the, the carousel has moved faster than ever before because of the transfer portal, which opened on Monday. And they want to get their new coaches in to keep players, to talk to recruits, to do everything. And so we've got a big chunk of hires here. Nicole, did any of these jump out to you? I suspect there's, a, I suspect there's one that at least jumped out that we'll talk about later in this pod. Yeah, I definitely want to dive a little bit deeper into the Scott Satterfield move. As you noted, the history of the Fenway Bowl is really remarkable. It has been canceled twice due to COVID and now has one of its head coaches leaving one school for the other. Unfortunately, he is not going to coach both teams in this game. He is just not going to coach in the bowl game. Boo. But you very rarely see something like this. I don't, I don't know. Did, did we determine if it has ever happened? I don't think it has. Uh, we, we've tried to look. We haven't found anything. 
Yeah, not, so not, I, mean, I mean, by the way, the Fenway Bowl has both teams on the same sideline because it's in a baseball stadium. It so would have been very, it would have been very both. easy, very yeah. easy, exactly. So for Scott Satterfield so to coach both teams. So we are going to dive into that because I think there's there's a lot of layers to that one. Um, I, I think another one that you've had to explain to me over the weekend was Jamie Chadwell going to Liberty. I don't think people realize just how much of a pay bump that was going to be, how much money Liberty is spending on its football program and resources there. Um, So that was an interesting one as well for someone that, you know, I think all of us think very highly of and maybe have been a little surprised that he didn't get more bites uh, for, for power five openings. Uh, Another one just real quickly that, was interesting to me was Kevin Wilson at Tulsa feels a little bit um I I don't know if old school is the correct way to describe it but like not one of the the hot rising names right now I mean he's obviously already been a head coach so did that one surprise you or was that something that was on your radar I honestly forgot Kevin Wilson was the offensive coordinator at at Ohio State he's been there for so long I just kind of forgot you know we all talk about Ryan Day and I just oh yeah Kevin Wilson's there yeah, so, so that one too. Um, but yeah, we'll get into some of these a little bit later in the show, and we'll get into Dion Sanders in Colorado. Yeah, so you, yeah, and everything you didn't mention Dion yet. We're going to get well, into Dion. Well, I knew we were, we've already got it. We're going to put it in the happy hour, so we're going to discuss all of that very shortly. Um, number three in the Power Five is the portal. The portal is up and running. Max Olson, I've had his tweets. Um, I've been getting tweet alerts for, for Max Olson's tweets all week because he is the portal king. Not Lane Kiffin. Max Olson is the portal king. And there have just been so many names. And I know we all expected it on on December 5th because that was the day the portal was opening. And I still think it's better to do it this way than it is to allow players to undergraduate players to enter in season. But I don't know if we saw. Do we see a total number? I know it's like sports source analytics or someone was tracking it. But it's got to be, what, at least in the 600s by now of players that have entered. The- I, I've seen some people say about 1,000, but that includes walk-ons. It, it's not a okay. fully accurate number. Yeah, so the, the, the number is high. Um, some of the more notable names. We've got a lot of interesting quarterbacks out of the ACC. You've got Devin Leary, DJ Uangalele. Uh, you got Hudson Card, Brennan Armstrong. Uh, Spencer Sanders, interesting name. I know we're going to get into Oklahoma State specifically a little bit later in the Rocks, but uh, just a, a lot of big names. And I think Spencer Sanders was was the biggest surprise to me because you were an established multi-year starting quarterback at a Power 5 school hopping into the portal. So that's an interesting one. And obviously, DJ, I think everyone was expecting that. Even before the Cade Klubnik era officially began in the ACC championship game. But that one's an interesting one because I just think you see the potential, you see the measurables on DJ, and I think someone's going to take a flyer on him. We're going to see. We've seen enough quarterbacks who didn't play that well or shouldered a lot of the blame for losses transfer elsewhere and have this new lease in life and have these incredible second acts. So I expect that we will see that with some of these quarterbacks as well. But obviously there's positions, uh, there's there's guys on the offensive line, defensive line, linebackers, star players all over at all of these different positions making moves right now. So that continues to change. Max Olson's doing an amazing like minute by the minute update on that. And I know the athletic has coverage of the first 24 hours of the portal being open and there's going to be rankings of, you know, who's winning in the portal and who's getting the best additions and the potential impact players. Yeah. I I think like, I think the number was like half of the week one ACC starting quarterbacks 
are in the portal now. You got Jeff Sims as well from Georgia Tech, which is also not a surprise. And that, that's the real, there's different takeaways from different portal names. Some guys are not surprises and they're very good. Some guys are surprises and they're good. And I, Kevin Clark at the ringer had a, had a good, had a good question in a tweet, which is basically like, I don't know how to determine if a kid who enters the portal is good or not. I'm basically just basing it off of whether or not the beat writer quote tweets and says, wow. And I, I, I think, and I think I figured out a good formula to determine if a player going into the portal is good or not. If the, if the replies to him on Twitter are a bunch of fans of that team wishing him well, that means he went down on the depth chart and he wasn't going to play anyway. Doesn't mean he's not good, but he's not a factor in that team anymore. If people are mad at him, that means he's a really good player who's leaving the school in a tough position. Fans are really upset about this player leaving. And then the the, the, the wild card is the emoji reply. If you get an emoji reply on a player, it usually means fans of another team are interested in him coming to their school. He, he may have been a highly touted recruit elsewhere who didn't pan out somewhere, maybe like Justin Flo at Oregon uh, or, or DJ at Clemson. So if there's an emoji, if there's a lot of emoji replies to a player in the portal, um, that means a lot of people are interested, but he's probably going on his way. So it, this is my this scientific is very, formula. very scientific. It um, is. I, I think that that is a, that is a strong strategy. I think you should get it down in print, get it getting written down in Sharpie, and, and see how well it holds up because this could be very helpful for next year. So I think I think you should absolutely do the the, the mathematics to see how effective the strategy is. Yes, yes, absolutely. Number four, we've got four Heisman finalists. They are USC quarterback Caleb Williams, Ohio State quarterback C.J. Stroud, TCU quarterback Max Duggan, Georgia quarterback Stetson Bennett the what? fourth. What? Yes. Stetson Bennett, the quarterback of the number one team of the country, drew a lot of uh, negative reactions among fans. We are not allowed to, at this moment, say who we voted for, but what do you think? What, what's your first impression, Nicole, of those finalists? Okay, so uh, a lot of people in the state of Georgia got mad at me for pointing this out, but people need to understand how many people vote on this thing. I mean, they need to really cull the, the voting list. Um, there's way too many people who do not actually cover college football or pay that attention to it. It's like almost a thousand voters. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's bad. And I think that in a year like this, where there wasn't an obvious Heisman front runner all season long, um, you know, if Hendon Hooker had beaten Georgia and, and, stayed healthy that may have been the guy right that was the closest that we were going to have this year but that didn't happen so once it became pretty wide open and obviously Caleb Williams came on towards the end of the season I am sure that there are lots of voters out there who said okay well who is the number one team in the country or the team that that won the SEC well just going to vote their quarterback as if that means that that's the best player on the team which it's not or like that that just by default is the person that deserves the Heisman Stetson Bennett is not the best quarterback in the country. He makes it work. He has been great at Georgia. He won the national championship for them. You can argue that he deserves to be a Heisman finalist for a number of other reasons, but if you believe, as I do, that in order to be the the, the Heisman Trophy winner, you should be the best player on your own team, as well as in your own conference and all these other things, then you take an issue with this. And I took an issue with the people, the lazy voters that we know are out there, not our friends in the media who are covering college football who still decided to vote for Stetson Bennett. That's fine. I know they're watching games. <laughs> I know they're paying attention to things. 
But there are voters out there that clearly just said, oh, quarterback number one team or quarterback team that won the SEC, that's who I'm voting for. So that, that, that bothers me. And I think that, you know, there were other finalists that really – or other players that deserve to be finalists. Hendon Hooker should be in New York. I knew he wasn't going to win this thing, but that is a player and a season that deserved to be a Heisman finalist. I would have loved to see Michael Penix Jr. in New York, maybe Bo Nix in New York. There were a number of candidates that I would have liked to see over Stetson Bennett. And again, I'm not criticizing anyone who decided that, you know, maybe he's the reason that they are where they are or he, you know, keeps them together or in the tough moments he's come through, whatever it is. But Jalen Carter's the best player on that team. There's other better players on that team. Brock Bowers. Like, you don't have to vote for the quarterback every single time. And especially, you don't have to do it if the the full team is good. But again, I, I digress. You're allowed to vote for him. I just think there were a lot of lazy voters. Enough that got him to be a finalist in New York. I, I would still think that Caleb Williams is the favorite. Uh, I think that anyone who has watched him over the last three weeks understands how well he plays. He makes passes, completes passes that no one else can. And I think you, if you watch the Pac-12 championship game, first of all, you saw him gut it out. He was obviously hurt. You also saw that the defense is the reason that they lost that game. The defense is the reason that USC is not in the playoffs. So I don't think you can hold that against him. So be interested to see what the final voting looks like. But I do have a problem with the laziness of voters who are just deciding default to go with the quarterback of the number one team in the country. Nicole's bringing the fire today. And, and remind me, we cannot say who we voted for. I think you can uh, figure out someone Nicole maybe did not vote for. My, 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 biggest, my biggest thing is make it five finalists. They, they've recently, I believe, made the rule that they only do four. Four is the max that they do. We've seen some years they bring three, but the max is four. I don't like that. Make it five. Let us celebrate how many players... Um, just celebrate more players who had really good seasons. We only get three choices on the ballot, and it's really hard to narrow it down to three. There's a lot of times you want to use that number three spot on someone you think maybe isn't going to get much attention but deserves a vote. I, I, I wish we could vote for five. I wish five got invited to New York every year. It's a very cool experience for them. And just would like to celebrate more players. So if you don't like Stetson Bennett, you do like him there or not. It'd be nice if Hendon Hooker was also there or Blake Corum was yeah, also I, I there. Don't, I don't think I group. would have had the same issue or reaction if those guys were also finalists, right? Yeah. It, it's more that he clearly got more votes than Hendon Hooker did and that yes. Blake Corum did. And just because those guys got injured doesn't mean that they had they didn't have seasons worthy of being Heisman finalists. Um, and so that's that's the bigger issue. This isn't about Stetson Bennett. This is about the voters and the bigger picture of what the season was. And it, it, Ari's, it's Ari's theory, right? Ari's the one who posited that the Heisman Trophy should be reflective of the story of the season. Mm-hmm. And I love thinking about it this way. And I know we've had this conversation last year when there were defensive players in the mix. And certainly in our athletic straw poll, you know, Will Anderson got more representation than he did in the ultimate Heisman Trophy voting. But you also had Aiden Hutchinson. You had other guys. I think this year, Hendon Hooker was a story of the season. Tennessee's resurgence was a story of the season. USC's resurgence. TCU, year one, Sonny Dykes, Max Duggan, the ups and downs of his career going undefeated in the regular season, reaching the college football playoff. Those were the stories of the season. I don't think 
George's offense was the story of the season. Anyway, I digress. I don't mean to rant. This isn't about Stetson Bennett. And it's not about our peers who actually cover college football who voted for him. It is about for all the hundreds of other voters who shouldn't have votes, ultimately. Okay, number five, wrapping up the Power Five. We, You and I have not actually hit on college football playoff expansion yet on this show because last week the Rose Bowl hurdle was cleared basically right after we recorded Power Hour. The next day was when college football playoff expansion became official for 2024, the 2024 season. So we're getting it. We only have one more year of the four-team playoff. Finally, finally can say this. It has not actually sunk in for me personally as someone who has been covering this for 18 months that we're done, that they're doing it, and they're doing it early, and it's going to be a 12-team playoff. Obviously, you know, they're still going to have to work through with their media partners about the specific dates and times of the games from everything I've been told. At least the commissioner level, having looked through the, the calendar, we're expecting Friday and Saturday games, multiple games on Saturday, which will need to go up against the NFL because that is the first Saturday that there will be NFL games in mid-December, third weekend in December. Um, a lot of things could change for, for 2026 onward with the new contract because, you know, you could move the whole season up to week zero. That adjusts and affects the calendar on the back end. You know, the, the revenue distribution questions and will it look more like the NCAA tournament? Those are all issues that will be decided for the new contract. But the concessions that needed to be made to do this early to get it done for 2024 were made. The Rose Bowl relented. And we're finally doing that. So I want to make sure we cover that because that happened right after Power Hour was recorded last time. It did. It's happening. It was right before the season kicked off. Expanded playoff was not happening. Now it's happening. Now it's happening in two years. They finally got it done. Thankfully, after all those many, many hours you and I spent sitting outside a conference room at the DFW. Here's a question, though. Are Are you sad that it didn't end with us? in person in that Dallas Fort Worth Hyatt Regency waiting area, like in the hallway on the carpet that we've been standing on and waiting. Like I felt a little anticlimactic that we were not physically present to be like, you did it. You know, like we weren't, we weren't in that uh, kind of like Groundhog's Day simulation that we had been in for so, so long that it was all, it was over zoom. It was all, you know, letters back and forth to the Rose Bowl. Like the final chapters were a little bit anticlimactic. They they completely blew the rollout of all of this, by the way. They yes. blew the rollout yes. of the announcement of the expansion, which happened on the Friday of the first weekend of the season, first major weekend of the season. I was sitting, I was standing in the College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta before Georgia, Oregon, when they decided to announce it via uh, news, press release, whatever. And now they did this. The news broke the night before. They didn't release the, the statement until the next morning. They really completely botched the rollout of this. Instead of it being something everybody could celebrate together, it's more of just like a finally they did it yes. because of how this yes. all played out. Very, very poor just general rollout strategy, I, I would say. But look, it's going to be here in two years. And what we just saw on conference championship weekend is going to be completely different. And I wrote this last week. Conference championship games in a 12-team era are going to be completely different. You would have had Utah and Kansas State playing to either be in the playoff, potentially with a bye, or not in the field at all. You would have had uh, Michigan, TCU, Georgia, uh, other teams playing for either a bye or potentially hosting a game I- instead. This, these are, it's good. 
every conference championship game is going to have big stakes, including at least one of the group of five games, because one of them is going to get into the playoffs. So I think you know, when we talk about does the playoff devalue the regular season and, and whatnot, there are people who have these concerns about that. And I understand those concerns because the college football regular season is the greatest regular season in sports. But I think the resulting impact on conference championship weekend is going to make that regular season that much more important because you want to get into that game. You, if, if you have a realistic chance of winning the playoff, you probably need a buy. You re- are going to want that first round buy if you're a Georgia, if you're an Alabama or whatever. So winning the SEC championship is going to be a very big deal. Unlike last year when Georgia lost the championship, lost the SEC championship, still won the national championship. So I, I think this is going to be really exciting. It's going to really completely change the dynamics of the ranking show, how we talk about teams, but I think it's going to be for the positive. Yes, I agree. And by the way, the fact that only the top four seats have to be conference champions uh, is going to add some wrinkles to this. There will be more yes. chaos because of the seating requirements, which everyone knows You know, all the commissioners agreed to. There's a lot of compromises in a lot of places. So the fact that Clemson would have been would have gotten a buy as the number three seed, and by the way, gotten healthy, had the right quarterback, would have been a lot better. I mean, like there, there's benefits to all of this. And the fact that maybe you think a team that wasn't a conference champion is actually better than some of those, well, it's going to play out. It's going to play out. You're going to see upsets. You're going to do all of this. It's going to be really fun. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We got to get to our happy hour segment. So this is where we talk about something that we are excited about, something we're loving in college football. I want to start with the coach of the year finalists, and then we'll get into Deion Sanders at Colorado. But here are the finalists for the Eddie Robinson National Coach of the Year. I just want to list them all off because we like to celebrate everyone. Sonny Dykes, TCU. Mike Elko, Duke. Willie Fritz, Tulane. Jim Harbaugh, Michigan. Lincoln Riley, USC. Kirby Smart, Georgia. John Summerall, Troy. And Jeff Trailer, UTSA. First of all, Chris, did the list was the list right? Are these the right finalists? And and how do you feel about some of these coaches? I mean, who are coaches that have done a remarkable job this season that you think deserve extra kudos? I completely agree that every coach on this list deserves to be on this list. Even Kirby Smart, who I know won the national championship last year, but Georgia just had an NFL a record number of NFL draft picks lose the team. To come back here and be number one is absolutely an accomplishment worth celebrating. Uh, There are some coaches I wish could have been on here or will be on other National Coach of the Year awards. There are a lot of them. They include Jim Mora at UConn, uh, Lance Leipold at Kansas, Jerry Kill at New Mexico State. All three got their teams to bowl games in unexpected years. Very, very job well done. To me, it's a no-brainer on National Coach of the Year. My pick is Sonny Dykes. He took over a team that missed a bowl game last year, and they almost... They almost go completely undefeated through the regular season. Uh, lost their lost their plan starting quarterback at the end of the year. Uh, had the number had I think number one strength of record entering the last weekend. To me, Sonny Dykes is the clear coach of the year. For me, what about you? 
Yeah, that's where my vote would go as well. Um, and I, I, I think it's, it's, it's for all the reasons you just said. It's for the fact that you know a lot of these players that he inherited obviously bought in, and he got them playing at a higher level. He got a Heisman Trophy finalist, and Max Duggan. He has a team that believes that they can win any game at any point in the game. Um, we talked a lot about their comebacks and the way that they've won some of these games. The fire drill field goal to win the game uh, that kept them kept them alive. That was against Baylor, right? Am I remembering that right? Yes, at Baylor. Yes, at Baylor. To me, that just shows that they're a well-coached team. I remember, you know, Sonny was pointing out, listen, it's, a, it's not as chaotic as it looks in those moments, but that's a team that's prepared. That's a team that knows what they're doing. They practiced and they can execute. Um, I think it's remarkable what they've done this season. We waited for them to drop off. We waited for them to realize to be they're not real. No, they're real. They've been very solid, very good. Sonny Dykes is a hell of a coach. It was a great hire for TCU. Totally unrealistic that a first-year coach can make the college football playoff. We almost had two this year with him yes. and Lincoln Riley nearly getting there. Um, but, yes, he deserves his due. I also want to give a special shout-out to uh, Mike Elko and Duke. I, I did their state of the program in the offseason, spent some time there in the spring. They're coming off a year where they did not win an ACC game. I, I remember, you know, you, we do go through this process, and at the end you're kind of being like, okay, well, what do I think – is the summation of the state of the program and what would be success for them. And I said that if they were able to eventually to, to reach a bowl game in year one, that would be a massive success. They go eight and four. You know, I mean, just the, the win over Miami, probably one of the highlights, but they were just so sound. You know, they found something in, in Riley Leonard at quarterback, but they've improved defensively, which is obviously Mike Elko's background. Um, that is a hard job. It's a hard place to win. We saw that at the end of the the, the David Cutcliffe era. And I, I just think he absolutely deserves credit. He was ACC coach of the year, absolutely deserved. And, you know, to your point on the on the Kirby Smart front, it, it goes for Jim Jim Harbaugh as well. We do need to mention the coaches at the top of the, that, that, that stayed at the top. It's very mm -hmm. hard to do that. It's hard to push all the right buttons. You, you mentioned all the turnover Georgia had. Michigan lost key players to the NFL. Jim Harbaugh changed both coordinators. He also handled a quarterback competition that went into the season. These coaches deserve credit for for making the right moves and for for keeping these things, keeping the ship uh, afloat. And and for Michigan, I think people thought that, you know, Ohio State was going to go back to being the class of the Big Ten. They were going to go back to beating Michigan. They were going to go back to to making the playoff, not Michigan. And, you know, what we saw out of Michigan at the end of the season, even without Blake Corum, really remarkable. So I I think I like Coach of the Year. I think it's a great award, and I think it allows us to highlight a number of these teams that are achieving things that wasn't weren't thought possible um, or were surprising to do so. But I also want to make sure in this happy hour, Chris, and I'm going to give you the floor here, that we talk about Deion Sanders in Colorado because this is something that – Still is a little bit like pinch me. This really happened. Colorado hired Deion Sanders. Coach Prime has been making a lot of content already. We've seen videos from when he met his players and basically told a lot of them to be prepared to go into the portal. Um, we, we know that he's going to bring players along with him. We know that Colorado is going to be changing their transfer rules so that it will be easier to bring in transfers. They had very strict policies um, in terms of academic credits. So, Chris. We'll put this in the happy hour segment because we think that this is exciting and interesting. Give me your reactions to the first few days of the, the Coach Prime era in Boulder. There are, there are so many things to talk about with the Coach Prime 
era in Colorado. The first is which to say, we're all talking about Colorado, and it's been a long time since that happened. Colorado is absolutely getting what it wants out of this so far, uh, talking to various coaches and people. A lot of kids in the portal, a lot of recruits are now thinking Colorado. They want to go play for Deion Sanders. He is he, he hasn't played in the NFL in like 20 years or so, and yet he's still so cool in the eyes of today's players. Like he really has kept up with that and positioned himself in a way that people want to come play for him. And look, he had a long NFL career. He had a media career. He doesn't have to be a coach. Like, he, he likes doing this. And, and so that is absolutely something to, to keep in mind. Colorado taking a, a jump that a lot of other places didn't want to take. There's a chance Colorado looks brilliant in a couple years with this. There's a chance it looks like a disaster. But Colorado is taking that chance after decades of accomplishing almost nothing. That is very exciting for Colorado. As for some of the other stuff around what Dion has done, it's, look, there's there's nuance to this. And part of that is understanding that everything Dion Sanders is going to do is going to be content. He is, he is creating content with everything he does. That includes the final team meeting with the team at Jackson State. That includes the first meeting with the kids at Colorado when he tells most of them to go jump in the portal with his his son is running a lot of the social media and a lot of this stuff and it's really fascinating it is fascinating to get an inside look at some of this stuff that you do not get anywhere else and that is what Dion is going to do you're going to have an inside look at everything he does good or bad and I, I personally just find that interesting more than anything else to the point about him telling kids to jump in the portal that I, hey I'm bringing my Louis I'm you know, Louis Vuitton I'm basically going to completely change things here He's not wrong. They're terrible. A lot of those kids on that team are not good enough to be on that team, and that's why they they went 1-11 as they did. The other part of it is that he's just doing what every coach does. Every, every new college coach, every current college coach is having those individual meetings with players and telling them, hey, you know, it, it might be best for you to go in the portal and find somewhere else where you can get some playing time. Dion just did it in a more Dion way, a more brash, upfront, transparent, and on-camera type of way. So that's going to be the Dion experience. Get ready for it. He's making a lot of money. It's not clear if Colorado has the money to pay <laughs> what they're doing based on some comments by AD Rick George. But those are my many, many thoughts on Dion and Colorado. What about you? Yeah, I'm very curious to see how this works. Um, I agree, and I've been saying this from Colorado's perspective. No one's been talking about Colorado. There hasn't been excitement. There haven't been reasons to to get excited or commit to go to Colorado as a player. Um, and now you've got this energy, and we're talking about him, and everything he does is newsworthy. And so I, I see why you try it. it you know, what's worked the last few hires has not worked uh, or what, what's been tried the last few hires has not worked. So very curious to, to see how this goes. You know, I was talking to a, um, a, a player who was from the Boulder area who went elsewhere for college. And he was just talking about, you know, how hard it is or, or why, you know, if you're, you know, a black football player, like he is, you know, why would you want to go to Boulder? And why, you know, why it's very predominantly white area. It's cold. They don't have a history of winning in the last 20 years. Like what, you know, what are the selling points? And, 
you know, Dion's got these relationships and this draw, and it's going to be very interesting to see if he can get the kind of talent to go to Boulder and to be part of this and try to change all of that. So I'm curious to see how all that plays out. Um, it's going to be absolutely one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting storyline of the off season. So we put it in the happy hour because it's interesting. It's exciting. And we think it might work. One last thing I wanted to note on this is that Deion Sanders is the first ever HBCU head coach to get a power five job directly from that school. Just the second black HBCU head coach to get an FBS job um, along with Willie Jeffries and uh, Jay Hobson, who was white, went to Southern Miss. Um, And Colorado is the first school, I believe, ever first predominantly white institution FBS school to hire three consecutive uh, black coaches, which is notable in a profession when there aren't many. And I believe at the time we're recording, he is the only black head coach hired in this cycle. Uh, That continues to be an issue in this profession. And I know there are many positive, negative thoughts about Dion's association with HBCUs. Some people don't like it. Some people do. I'm not the person to have that conversation, but just wanted to note uh, uh, the significance of Dion getting this job. Before we leave the happy hour, I want to talk a little bit about some of the early bowl games that we're excited for. Um, you know, it's only it's the first week of December right now, so we don't have bowls this week, but we have them soon coming up. Um, so, Chris, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the bowl games, maybe flying under the radar, matchups, um, storylines, anything that we're excited about. So I'll, I'll let you go first. Why don't you give me, you know, two or three or four bowl games you're excited for? I got to start off with the Cure Bowl, which is the second bowl game on the entire schedule. I think it's Friday. I think it's next Friday afternoon, I think. And that is UTSA versus Troy. That's a Conference USA champion against the Sunbelt champion. Both of them are 11 and 2. Both of them are ranked in the top 25. This is a ranked bowl game. This is a this is a major bowl game by all accounts. I'm very much looking forward to that game. I'm also looking forward to the Holiday Bowl between Oregon and North Carolina. We could have Bo Nix and Drake May. I expect a lot of points in that one. Those are those are two of the first ones that kind of jumped out for me outside of the New Year Six. What about you? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, you talk about rank on ranked. Um, you know, Notre Dame, South Carolina, they're playing the Gator Bowl. That one's going to be really fun. Uh, the, the, you know, Texas-Washington playing in that Alamo Bowl, that one's pretty interesting in terms of the storylines, especially with Michael Penix Jr. just announcing that he's coming back to the Huskies. Um, Texas continues to try to be back and to, to show the growth that they made this season as they went 8-4. and four. So that one's interesting to me. Um, I think, you know, Kansas making the bowl game, we're all excited for that, breaking a long drought and the Liberty Bowl going against Arkansas. So I guess this is for the right to put Kansas in the name of your school yes. and the and, name and of your we're, state. We're, we're not getting Missouri in that game, unfortunately. I, I Very think we, bummed about that. They were evenly no. matched. They could have played each other, could have gotten a border war, a, a border war in the bowl, um, but we did not get that. Uh, last one I'll just mention as well is the Mayo Bowl. Our friends over at the Mayo Bowl got a fun matchup in old ACC foes, teams that have met 70 times over the course of their history, Maryland and NC State. And I, I will say um, a source close to the Mayo Bowl has informed me that if Maryland wins, which Mike Loxley has already committed and said he would be all in for a Mayo dump, that they would put Old Bay seasoning in the Mayo. Ooh. So that actually sounds pretty delicious in terms of like dipping a fry in it, but – Something to keep an eye on 
as we watch the Mayo Bowl. And the the funny part is, I, I don't know if Dave Doran has even been asked about this because he would be ha- pretty hilarious to imagine getting the Mayo Bowl dumped on. <laughs> yes. But it doesn't have to be him. It could be a player. It could be anyone associated with the program. But, I mean, imagine Old Bay Mayo. Let's do it. So I'm always excited for that one. But there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting, like, stylistic matchups in some of these bowls that are not the New Year's Six Bowls, too. Yes. Uh, Florida versus Oregon State will be fun. Mm-hmm. So we'll the Cheese It Bowl, Florida State versus Oklahoma. By the way, we kind of have two Cheese It Bowls. There's the Cheese It Bowl and the Cheese It Citrus Bowl. They're both in Orlando. It's gonna be confusing. We are understandably with you uh, on that. But look, well, this is the well, time of year we we get the bowls we don't recognize. It's hard to remember what's what. The 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 old the Outback Bowl is now the ReliaQuest Bowl. Shed a tear over that. Uh, the the old Copper Bowl has had 50 different names. I think it's a guaranteed rate bowl now. So, you know, these traditions live on for sure. They do. And I think in both of the Cheez-It Bowls, we're going to see athletes, like, get to sleep in a Cheez-It-themed bedroom. I don't know if yes. you guys have seen these. They're going to be NIL deals. Um, so I'm super interested to see how that that shakes out as well that's what um, bowl should do that you want should. players NIL to play deals. if you yeah. want players if you're worried about players not playing or opting out of your bowl game or whatever give them some money or cheese it room that is bright orange and bright red uh i would sleep in that room just as an aside time for on the rocks this is part of the show where we talk it out we look for the friction somewhere in the sport and we work through it uh, we're going to focus mostly in on basically one rocky relationship and the tentacles outward from it. So Scott Satterfield was on the hot seat in the early part of the season at Louisville and they won enough games and everyone felt like he wasn't really on the hot seat and that job wasn't going to open. Then Luke Fickle leaves Cincinnati, goes to Wisconsin and Cincinnati is searching for a coach. We, you know, we knew that they would like to get a sitting power five head coach. That was something that in an ideal world, would would be what they were looking for. And Scott Satterfield is now the new head coach of Cincinnati, which is moving up to the Big 12. The Louisville job is open, so that means that there's going to be some questions about, is Jeff Brom coming home for that position? Whatever that might be. You mentioned this at the top. These two teams, Cincinnati and Louisville, were supposed to meet, are, are going to meet in the Fenway Bowl. Scott Satterfield is not going to be involved in coaching either side of this game. Um, but... That's an interesting one. And again, for a coach that started the season on the hot seat, but then things turned around. They won a bunch of games. I, I just, I'm curious your reaction overall to the news that that's where the Cincinnati went. Does that check the boxes for what they were looking for? And what does it mean that Cincinnati is able to get the Louisville head coach in terms of where those two jobs are relative to each other? It's interesting for a lot of reasons. And I, I think, both sides can be kind of happy and, and not so happy. The, the Cincinnati search had taken some twists and turns. Some people you thought were going to be in the job weren't on the job, went to other places. And ultimately, kind of the night before this happened, you're hearing Kent State, Sean Lewis, and Buffalo's Mo Linguist perhaps as the finalists. But it felt like there was something else out there, a mystery man, a mystery candidate. It did feel like this wasn't the only two that were left. I wake up at 7 a.m. Central the next morning uh, to let the dogs out. Turned out to be an exact opportune time because that was right when the news dropped that Satterfield was going to Cincinnati. And look, it makes sense for him. He's going to enter the hot seat again uh, at, at Louisville next year. He gets to reset his clock. He's making a similar amount of money. That wasn't really what it's about. 
Um, is it a step up? Is it a step down? Uh, you could make cases for and against. I, I'd understand. Cincinnati went to the playoff. That that helps. Louisville's ahead in NIL. There's that in, in that favor. But more than anything, he gets away from a situation that wasn't working for him all that well. He was barely winning enough to save his job. Now he gets to restart everything. If you're Cincinnati, it's we'll see. You know, he was a good coach at App State. Um, but how much of that was him and how much of that was App State? You know, we, we don't really know yet. So this is a big change for Cincinnati as they move into the Big 12 for the first time. Um, he's not a bad coach by any means, so I, I don't think it's like a, a bad hire or anything. I think it's just one that people are going to have some skepticism about until uh, things get going. And, and for Louisville, Jeff Brom is the top target, as everyone expects. He's the former Louisville player and native and everything and made some comments at a at a high school reunion back in the spring about you know the last time louisville came open it wasn't the right time for him to leave purdue but things change and, and you never know anymore so we'll see if, if it's not him perhaps liam cohen the the, uh, the oc with the la rams is a name I've, I've heard around this job could go a few different ways but uh that's where those are other open jobs at the moment kent state north texas stanford western michigan the only power five one there stanford Moving pretty slow, which maybe is not unexpected since it's Stanford, but um, some names you hear around there, Jeff Tedford, the Fresno State coach, Troy Taylor, the head coach at FCS Sacramento State, who's uh, number one, I think, in the playoffs this year. Um, Greg Roman was around it, not so much anymore. Maybe Brocko Mendenhall, we'll see. But Stanford, not in a hurry exactly to, to make a hire. Yeah, I think all of that's definitely interesting, especially the the Brom to, to Louisville chatter. And, you know, it's especially interesting coming off Purdue making the Big Ten title game and the anticipation that divisions are going to go away in two years. Mm-hmm. Because is this is that the peak? Is that what he was possibly going to be able to achieve at Purdue? And it feels like a better time to leave. We'll, we'll see. I mean, it's definitely possible you could look at it and say, you know, if you go to Louisville, you have a better chance at winning your conference, reaching the playoff from there. I mean, there's definitely other pieces uh, to that decision-making process that are going to be interesting to keep an eye on. So, yeah, the, the the carousel is still spinning, even though a lot of these jobs have filled because of the transfer portal windows being open so that people can figure out their rosters. One school that I want to make sure we hit on before we finish this segment is Oklahoma State, because as we're recording this, Um, Spencer Sanders is officially in the transfer portal. So that is nine Oklahoma State players that have entered the portal in the first two days of its existence this season. Uh, Cause for concern, the Cowboys? I think so. I mean, Mason Cobb, and there are really good linebackers in there as well, as long as running back Dominic Richardson. They've, um, of all the the Power 5 schools that didn't have a coaching change, uh, Oklahoma State's numbers in the portal particularly stand out. Um, it's important to remember that just because a player is in the portal does not mean they're for sure leaving or even off the team. I think TCU has a running back or SMU has a running back who's in the portal but still planning to play the bowl game. It just means you're kind of on the market and people can reach out to you. So things can change. But this is, I'd have to say, a little concerning for Oklahoma State. I mean, Spencer Sanders had up and down year he was hurt you know i you wouldn't confuse him with a heisman candidate uh quarterback but a number of talented players here at oklahoma state in the portal and i'm curious to see how this plays out whenever mike gundy eventually makes his first comments about it which i'm sure will be something 
but but if if you've been kind of if it's been overload from the portal and you're not sure who's in, who's out, who matters, who doesn't, Oklahoma State has been a team to keep an eye on in terms of what they are losing at this point. All right, we're going to wrap up the show as we always do with a last call. This is the point in the show where, you know, it, it can be a rant, it can be a rave, it can be a cheers, it can be a jeers. It's really whatever. You're at the bar, it's closing. You want to get one last drink. What do you cheers do? You want to get something off your chest one last time? You want to celebrate something one more time? It can be any of those. I will go first here. Mine is a jeers. Mine is something that's bothered me really since I got a Heisman vote all the way back in, I think 2015 was the first year that I had one. They changed the rules around this, and I forget when, but it's been a while now where if you vote for the Heisman, you can't say who you voted for until the winner is announced. And people used to write columns, you know, here's who I voted for and why, Mm -hmm. and talk about this, engage with it. And I think it's just a mistake that we're muzzled on it because what it ends up doing is, yeah, there was a little bit of buzz around the finalists being announced, mostly because Stetson Bennett was one, and that's not someone that I don't think a lot of people expected would be a Heisman finalist. But other than that, it's going to be quiet for the next five days. And then, boom, it's announced Saturday night. There's no buzz in the lead up because you don't let people talk about it. You don't let people write about it. You don't let people say, this is my guy and this is the case I made for him. This is how I went through the thinking and the thought process. And here's why I voted for this person at number three. And I really thought that they should be a Heisman finalist. You you can't, you don't get any of that. So what ends up happening is, you know, we have a straw poll over at The Athletic of how, you know, our top three votes on our staff would have gone. Not everyone has a Heisman vote, but usually it's a decent idea of, you know, who, who will eventually get there, maybe the winner themselves. But you don't have any of that juice between now and the award being handed out. So I just feel like there could be so much more around the lead up to the Heisman Trophy, which is the best individual award in sports. And there isn't. It used to be that way. I mean, you like you remember th- there was. I think part of the issue was there was that website. I don't was it Heisman, Heisman Watch pun- pundit Heisman maybe? pundit. It was Heisman pundit. Yeah, and and they would track what people wrote about what they voted for and kind of just keep. Not everybody wrote a column about what they had. Not everybody said what their votes were. Like we said, there was hundreds of people who vote. The issue was that the Heisman didn't want. They felt like it was taking out the drama if people were uh, saying who they voted for. It felt like Heisman Pundit or some of these websites could maybe determine who the winner was before it happened. And the result was they stopped doing that. And the Heisman banned everybody from saying uh, what their what their ballot was. And the result is, like you said, five days of silence going into the, the, the ceremony. And instead of five days of building it up, of talking about players we like, especially in a close year like it could be this year, we're not uh, we're not talking about the Heisman. We talked about it Monday night, and that's all we're going to say about it until the event on Saturday. So definite jeers for that. I, I, I think it's I think it's short-sighted to to keep everything so secret. And my cheers to wrap this up is Max Duggan, the TCU quarterback. Uh, I watched him in person on that game on Saturday and just the ultimate, like I know people kind of, you kind of roll your eyes sometimes at the idea of like 
the gutsy quarterback performance who just wills his team to victory on the back by sheer grit and, and all those cliches and stuff like that. But Max Duggan literally did that on Saturday against Kansas State. It was like the man scored a touchdown and immediately collapsed because he couldn't catch his breath. He didn't want people to pick him up. He throws that two-point conversion to tie the game and collapses again. Teammates come around him and he's shooing him away because he needs to get some air to breathe. Just a, a remarkable... Honestly, just truly gutsy performance, something that makes you believe in that term again. And then they obviously lose the game. He gets stopped at at the one-inch line. They don't get it in. And we're sitting there for the press conference afterward. And Sonny Dykes comes up. Two other TCU players come up. And then there's still a delay for eventually for Max Duggan to come in. Duggan comes in, and his eyes are just beat red. You can tell this dude has been crying a lot about this. He gets up there, he sits there, he's trying to hold back tears, he's sniffling a lot, he's really sad that he couldn't bring a conference championship to TCU, and man, you just really felt for him in that moment after everything he had literally given. His his arm was covered in blood because he has some turf burn on there. I uh, just wanted to shout out Max Duggan. We'll see what happens with the Heisman Trophy ceremony on, on Saturday. On, yeah, Saturday. But his performance against Kansas State, really what he's done all season, has just been um, just a lot of fun to watch. And I I hope he was able to get maybe a ventilator after that game as well. Yes, um, I completely agree. And it does sound cliche, but he did will this team to win in the – that drive to tie the game. I mean, he he willed that team down the field and and tied that game up. Uh, so I, I completely concur. Max Duggan, incredible season, incredible career, ups and downs, not starting to start the season. Real quick, just as we're this is popping as we are finishing this pod, um, but our Bruce Feldman has confirmed that UNLV is expected to hire Barry Odom as the next head coach. So there's another job filled, another job down. Chris, if you wanted to quickly react to that one. Yeah, no, it makes sense. UNLV was looking at a lot of former head coaches for this job. The AD Eric Harper had said that's kind of something that he wanted. Some of the other names that were around it were um, uh, Mike Stoops, who actually the AD was once a DFO for, Gary Patterson. Heard Bronco Mendenhall, not clear how, how real that was. Kevin Wilson, who ultimately took the Tulsa job. Uh, that That's really what the focus of UNLV ended up. They want someone who's been a head coach before. And look, that's a track record the last couple years for bottom-feeding programs that have worked. Look at Jim Mora at UConn. Look at Jerry Kill at New Mexico State. Clay Helton in his first year at Georgia Southern. Uh, Mike McIntyre had a good first year at FIU. Uh, call it retreads. Call it whatever you want. But we've seen some of these group of five programs doing this more and finding some success with it. So we'll see. Barry Odom was 500 in his first year. Uh, his first stint over four years as Missouri head coach. So, uh yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and I'm sure our guys, Andy and Ari, will have more reaction to that and all of the twists and turns of the coaching carousel on this feed all week, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. That will do it for this week's edition of Power Hour. For Chris Vanini, I'm Nicole Auerbach. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next Wednesday. (laughs) 